the exchange of value happens between two individuals in a community. And when you're not allowed to be involved in that community, you know, it, it hurts as an individual and it feels unfair and it is, right? We want more people to be involved in the global community. Hey, welcome back to Venturing Out. My name is Dylan Fontaine, and I will be co-hosting this series with Erica Ginnivan. We are very excited to present to you this series where we will explore the fintech industry with founder and CEO of the Odyssey Project, Bryce Jerks, and hear about his experience starting Odyssey and what he has learned along the way and his advice for you. In addition to being the founder of the Odyssey Project, Bryce is a serial entrepreneur and got his start in high school when he started a chewing gum company that was one of the first shipped by, sold by food items on Amazon, and shortly went on to be featured on the cover of 30 West magazine. He then transitioned to college, where he attended and graduated from Baylor University with a Bachelor of Science in Integrated Studies with a concentration in entrepreneurship. Now Bryce works concurrently at Dell Technologies in the Business Intelligence Global Business Service Performance Analytics Group while also attending the University of Texas at Austin, studying towards a Master of Science in Technology Commercialization. Since starting the Odyssey Project, Bryce was featured on Business Insider for empowering disenfranchised individuals and was selected as a 25 under 25 nominee by the Austin Business Journal. Bryce is also a good friend of the show, and we are incredibly thankful to have him here. Hey, Bryce. Thanks for being here with us today. Hey, Dylan. I appreciate it. Excited to talk to you guys. All right, Bryce. So this is your time to brag about yourself. Tell us a little about what you're doing and how you got started. Yeah. So I uh, live down here in Austin. I'm a Baylor graduate. That was my first introduction to Texas, was going to Baylor and exploring Waco. I majored in a couple of different things. I I started in the business school studying entrepreneurship. Then I also got interested in political science and environmental science and ended up finishing with a degree in integrated studies, which is actually a bachelor of science. And currently I'm finishing up my master's at the University of Texas, uh, getting a master's of science in technology commercialization. Tell us about, you know, Odyssey Project, introduce your business and tell us about your role there. Yeah, so the Odyssey Project is a fintech startup here in Texas. I currently run the company as CEO. I also do work for Dell Technologies. I help build their SalesWorks platform. It's an internal business intelligence tool. It's used by sales, operations, and finance. And I also worked on several other businesses in the past. Back in high school, I started Explicit Gum, which is a chewing gum company. We were actually one of the first shipped by, sold by Amazon.com food products, which is very cool. We also sold through DECA stores at different high schools uh, around the country. Uh, DECA is a kind of business competition and mentorship program for high school students, kind of like FBLA, which I know is more popular down south. And after that, I started a uh, natural energy drink company while in college. And prior to all that, my uh, elementary school gym teacher got me invested interested in investing in the stock market. She would give me rides to soccer practice, uh, which is right by her farm, and introduced me to her son, who was a a big investor. So 
I would trade portfolios with my grandma. We would check out the stocks and whatnot. And uh, we invested in Tesla back in 2009. So that was a very cool investment uh, shortly after its IPO and uh, really took off. I, I believe in following a lot of principles of Jim Collins books, which are more business books built, built to last and good to great. Uh, talks about level five leadership. And I believe when you're investing in a company, the, you know, the K-10s are great, the financials are great, but if you invest in the individuals leading the organization and if they've built a solid foundation, there's a lot better long-term return. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Bryce. Um, and that was something that we've talked about with other speakers too, is how important that initial team is and how, um, how important teams are just in general, right? Our, our team members, our friends, whoever you're working with, I mean, humans are your biggest, your biggest asset. Um, human capital is incredibly important. And so we're glad, uh, glad you're here today. And hopefully we can hear more about your team and hear more about Odyssey Project. And I think that's a great place for us to start. Being the CEO of Odyssey Project, give us a 30,000 foot level of what the Odyssey Project is. Yeah, so we're working on building a closed loop payment network with legacy support. Basically, what that means is we've built our own internal network for frictionless funds flow. Typically in a transaction, there's anywhere from eight to nine, uh, sometimes even more companies or middlemen involved in processing the data and actually facilitating the movement of funds, which creates fees and time which can impact business cash flow and getting their disbursements, how long it takes for an employee or another consumer to get their funds. And so our main focus is to break down those payment silos through working with industry partners and our own technology to make it easier for businesses to accept funds as well as disperse payments. Bryce, that's interesting. So you're saying that you're creating a frictionless closed loop payment network. Is that right? Yes. So I know that's something that you're jumping into fresh out of Baylor. So tell me what kind of resources did you gain from Baylor and how did they support you in that new venture? Yeah, we received a lot of support from Baylor. One of our advisors is actually Bradley Norris in the entrepreneurship department. And even since the time I've been at Baylor, it's continued to grow in the resources that they have. The, the Baylor Business School has a lot of opportunities, things like joining Venturing Out, joining a podcast, the, the new Baylor Entrepreneurship Club, which I hear is very exciting and didn't exist when I was there. And there's lots of study abroad opportunities as well, and just ways to immerse both, you know, as an individual entrepreneur, but also ways to innovate within an organization through corporate entrepreneurship and finance. So... I definitely recommend to, to any Baylor student to get involved with just the business school in general, whether or not you're a business major, there's aspects of business that touch every industry, whether you're commercializing fashion at, with the Baylor School of Art and Design, or you're innovating a new way to, for example, work on COVID, which is a very timely thing and creating new ventilation systems using just different materials, which I know there were projects that went on at the Baylor uh, Science Building. And so there's different ways to commercialize products. And speaking of the 
commercializing products, the BRIC, the Baylor Research and Innovation Collaborative, is doing some amazing works around science and technology and taking patented Baylor technology and bringing it to market. And they actually provided us with some co-working space when we first started out as well. So lots of support from Baylor and a lot of resources I recommend Baylor students to reach out um, for assistance in starting their, their ventures. Yeah, yeah, that's great that you've got a lot of uh, you know, awesome resources from Baylor. Baylor definitely has a really strong ecosystem for entrepreneurs um, and been accredited by multiple agencies and administrations for the support that we give student entrepreneurs. I want to follow up. Bryce, what is a frictionless closed loop payment network? Yeah, so just a simple example would be I go into a business today and I pay cash and that business gets the money right away. There's no one involved. There's me and the merchant and there's super close relationship, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you just think about the exchange of value, uh, Bradley actually, Bradley Norris says it's this mystical thing that happens when two individuals believe something has value. And it's almost this community aspect of, you need two or more individuals to believe that something is worth something else. And in the beginning, when we were just bartering and trading as a species, uh, it, it, there wasn't all these people in, in between. And so creating a frictionless network just basically means bringing the two people in a transaction closer together. So there's just us and the two individuals. They can do it digitally, whether they're using a traditional payment card or they're using just our applications and it's cutting out all these middlemen involved today in a transaction flow you have two banks acquiring bank and issuing bank the acquiring bank being the merchant's bank that's accepting the money and the issuing bank being the one that issued the payment card or is initiating the flow of funds typically from a consumer or from another business then in the in between you have things like payment gateways you could have the software hardware company, uh, value-added resellers. Then you also have the merchant acquiring services. It's typically done by a third party as well or a large bank themselves. And so each one of these steps has a little fra like tr fractional fee that's charged that costs the merchant money typically. And then on top of all of this, you also have the card association or card networks which are like Visa and MasterCard. And so by eliminating the steps, one, it makes it easier and faster to move these funds, but it also reduces the cost of a transaction. I call it a, a corporate tax, right? Like you pay sales tax on every transaction. If you're accepting digital payment, there's some type of fee involved, which can make it more expensive for a consumer to buy a product or a business to sell another business a product. and by creating this frictionless flow, it ultimately makes it more affordable for anyone to send or receive money. So essentially what you're trying to do, uh, help me understand, here's an example. This morning, I went to a coffee shop. I bought coffee um, and when they said my total was 476, I insert my card and before my money, ever hits the bank account of the coffee shop, 
it's going through seven or eight different intermediaries before it ever is settled into the bank account of the coffee shop. And each intermediary is taking a fraction of the sales revenue. Right. Yes. And, and really most of them are just data processors, right? You think about Visa, for example, Visa is a global payment network. They are really a data processor. That's the biggest thing they do is they process the data. They, they initiate API or transaction calls between financial institutions or FIs, which are really just banks, credit unions, right? And the people who are really moving the money are either a, a payment facilitator that can actually facilitate funds or a bank, right? Uh, most transactions, even uh, credit card, debit card transactions have end of day batching. The money isn't instantly available. It typically takes two, one to two business days for the merchant to actually get their funds. And it goes through very traditional payment schemes like Fedwire, when you hear someone's gonna wire you money, uses Fedwire network, which is direct um, Federal Reserve banks that uh, interchange transaction calls with the Fed and ACH, which is on the Notcha network, which is run by uh, the clearinghouse, right? And so these are how typical funds flow in, in a digital transaction, right? And mm -hmm. so even with a card transaction, they're still going through these traditional flows and it takes time and it costs the financial institution money to move that money. So it's not just friction from uh, consumer to business, but also from business to business on the back end as well. Yeah. And business to bank or bank to business. Right. Yeah. So, so there's multiple parties involved. Uh, even beyond the ones processing the data and the typical big names that you hear and most people are familiar with, some of the largest payment companies uh, in, in, a, in the country and the world aren't, you know, common day name brands for the everyday consumer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Bryce, you know, you've uncovered the clear problem you're trying to solve, which is cost, right, of, of businesses and the cost they incur. So tell me, I know a lot of businesses like yours, like the Odyssey Project, are developed in order to solve these problems. Um, so now that we've uncovered the problem, tell me, what was your inspiration? How did you discover this was a problem? And kind of where did you get the idea to start the Odyssey Project? Yeah, and, and well, and even beyond the cost, it's even just the ability to process payments, right? It's access. So if I'm a business today and I want to be able to accept money, I need to be approved by an underwriting bank on the acquiring side. And these aren't your typical regional or community banks. There's something called tier one capital and a bank has tier one capital reserves uh, with the Fed and within their total assets under management. And based on that tier one capital determines whether or not that bank is large enough to maintain the risk of allowing a business to accept transactions. And so, for example, Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank, Chase Bank uh, are some of the largest banks in the country and actually underwrite a majority of merchant processing. There's three types of merchant processing banks, acquiring banks, agent banks, and referral banks. And so the inspiration for the Odyssey Project started around the idea of access and financial inclusion 
and really the idea of financial literacy as well, just knowledge of either personal or business finances. And that all stems back to when I was studying abroad in Rwanda with Baylor. And so well in Rwanda, we were studying microfinance and economic development. And there were some really, really cool things happening uh, in country. And so we started in the capital of Kigali. It's a lot more developed, uh, more modernized uh, city uh, within East Africa region. And they have, you know, banks, tall buildings, a five-star Marriott hotel, right? It's not the uh, typical East African, you know, village that gets uh, posted about a lot, right? It's a lot more modernized. But you go two hours outside of Kigali and, and you see what a lot of people think of when they think of East Africa, which is very, very high levels of poverty, uh, low access to infrastructure. But what a lot of people are amazed about is everyone has access to cell service. So around the world, 97% is probably greater now, 97% of the human population has access to basic SMS messaging. Because when you think about it, internet, even wireless internet needs physical infrastructure. There are big wires running across the Atlantic and Pacific oceans connecting the internet. For cell service, you just throw up a cell tower, communicates with satellites, and now people have access. And so what was happening previously out in these villages is there's central banks in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda. And to get funds out to these villages, they would take it on motorbike or donkey. And as you can imagine, there were funds that got lost, people got robbed. Uh, it, was, it was not just not secure, but it was also very unsafe for these couriers. And what they did in, in Rwanda was they used SMS messaging to create banking representatives in different villages through SMS messaging and just basic text messages to facilitate the movement of funds from the capital out to these villages. So it created a new avenue for access using this novel idea with basic uh, infrastructure legacy technology, SMS messaging. And some other really cool things they were doing around microfinance was savings groups. So microfinance can be very good and it can be very bad. There can be sharks that try to take advantage of the situation. What was unique in Rwanda is they were using these concepts of savings groups where everyone in the village would pool money together and then loan it out to other individuals in the community as their community money. It wasn't a, a third party coming in or a, a foreign investment group coming in and just trying to make a huge profit off of these small micro loans, you know, maybe 50 USD dollars, right? But what they were doing instead was finding ways to build the community, giving individuals access to funds and a market to transact, whether in there in the country or whether they now have access to this global economy uh, with foreign tourists, et cetera, bringing in wealth to that region. And, and so I further studied abroad in Hong Kong, again with Baylor, but actually studying environmental science. And what we were looking at in Hong Kong was how to plan a city and access resources in a very dense uh, population and a small landmass. And ironically, payments paid a role there as well in how people engage with public transit, 
their ability to access resources through payments. Payments are intertwined in, in really everything we do every day and we just don't realize it. And it's, it's a universal language around the world. It's, it's something that stands and countries stand behind the value, right? And so in Hong Kong at the time I was there, this was before Alipay got big, before they had WeChat. And I was in this huge technologically advanced city and couldn't send money to another student I was with because they didn't have a concept of Venmo because uh, Venmo is a US-based business. And there's a lot of complexities around cross-border remittance. But I was like, again, coming back to the idea of access, just the ability for two people to exchange value uh, in, a, in, a, in a foreign foreign nation, right? And so that's really what inspired the Odyssey project and our original product, Roy Chat, which was an SMS-based conversation engine that you could just use text message. And it's like Siri and Alexa and uses natural language processing algorithms on the back end to understand what the user was asking for so they could order and transact a payment. So you've really taken bits and pieces of what you've studied and experienced over the years across different cultures and you found the need and you found the value for how people transact and what the payment stack and flow looks like in different areas. And you're trying to bring that all together in, into the Odyssey project to solve the problem that we've already identified, right? Yes. Bryce, you know, you've given us a really high level understanding of what the problem is and where your goals align with solving those problems. So I want to zoom in a little bit. Tell me, how does, do you incorporate all of this into the Odyssey project? And how do you specifically solve these problems through the business that you've created? Yeah, so we mentioned the closed loop network, we mentioned frictionless. Uh, how we've done that is through a vertical integration of becoming each one of those, you know, seven or eight steps minus the bank, right? And so with that, to help enable businesses, we've created a suite of products, really software and hardware value add on top of our underlying payment technology and things like Roy Point of Sale, which provides businesses the ability to accept payments in person uh, or digitally online. Things like Roy Billing, for invoicing and quote-based businesses, and things like Roy Card to access those funds instantly on a visa-issued card to spend those funds and disperse them. And so that's really around the access part. And how we're creating even more access is providing those software and hardware value-add services for free. So there's no extra subscription cost to access the payment technology. A lot of these services today, there's niche ones, there's some larger players. Most of them all charge something, right? Or they have a free option to start using it. But as your business grows and you mature into a higher level, you're paying a lot of money for software and hardware on top of the payment fees. Because we're many of the steps and we're getting many pieces of the pie, we can be more competitive in our transaction pricing, but at the same time offer the services of the software and the hardware for free, so it helps more businesses gain access. And then in terms of the, the financial literacy part, we work a lot with restaurants. Restaurants are a low margin business. And so if you make a mistake or don't have an understanding of your food cost, 
at least 80% or more of restaurants fail. It's probably higher now uh, with the impacts of COVID, but it's a very, very competitive and hard business to do successfully if you don't have an understanding of your data. So we created Roy BI, which is Roy Business Intelligence. And with that, we have a high level view and then a detailed dive into businesses data. So they have access to understanding where they stand at any time, uh, money coming in, money going out, what their average margin is on products, what they're spending on employees per hour to make sure they have a fu fundamental understanding of their finances. And we've also integrated with third parties like QuickBooks, Pipedrive, Harvest App, uh, Bitrix24 so that they can integrate our data knowledge and our payment flows into other software that they use in their business to make it very, very easy for them to transact. It's interesting. And you had talked about a couple of your customers and, and how you're integrating or vertically integrating the payment stack. So for example, let's go back to the coffee shop. Your goal for vertical integration is to integrate not just the coffee shop into, um, into the bank, but also the other way, have the customers transact through one of your Roy cards and have the payment processing actually go through you guys vertically. And I mean, being able to really move funds when the, within this like, I don't know, this payment ecosystem, right? Yeah, yeah. So once a business gets money, right, it, it can be difficult for them to pay out that money, mm -hmm. right? And well, not necessarily difficult, but it can take time, right? So some platforms, because they make money on the funds flow, which basically means when the funds are, are in transit, they're not in one place or another place yet. I'm a business and I'm paying an employee, right? So that, that those funds have been withdrawn from my business account and they're pending going to my employee. That funds float, intermediaries make interest on mm. that funds moving through. So it's technically in those third parties' best interests to make it as long as possible mm. for their, the money to get to that employee. What we've done is we've worked with um, some payment partners and we can do instant disbursements, which basically means 30 minutes or less, I can disperse funds out, whether it's me paying another business or me paying my employee and reduce the time and cash flow constraints it takes in one, not just the business accepting money, but also paying money out to employees or, or third party suppliers. And on top of all this, we also have Roy Developer, which is an open suite of APIs to allow developers to build on top of our network. So they can build industry specific software and, and gain access to this payment network mm -hmm. to reduce the, the friction. And, and so when two people are transacting in network, it just sits between our sponsoring banks and us. So we can move funds frictionlessly in real time uh, between a business and a business or a consumer transacting at a business. So there's uh, none of these middlemen at all involved as well. Yeah. So you've identified customers as well. Um, and we, I understand the flow of your tech technology and what it's trying to do. But what high level, what's your business model? How are you guys making money and who are your customers? 
maybe even uh, talk about your your three markets, your total addressable all the way to obtainable. Yeah, so our total market is that we're really, you know, targeting is payment transactions currently in um, B2C and B2B transactions, focusing heavily right now on the merchant business side of things. And the serviceable um, market is the U.S. uh, parts of LATAM and Canada, right? Mm -hmm. And right now our our core um, obtainable market is really the United States that we have a core focus on um, and a lot here in Texas. And so we make money on transaction fees, right? When a business is accepts money, we make money on that. When a business spends money, uh, we make it on the reverse side from the merchant that they're purchasing from. And then we also make uh, money on funds sitting within the network and interest, right? So typically there's several parties making Mm -hmm. this money because we are making percentages of transactions at different times, we can charge less Mm -hmm. because we're getting more of the pie. We don't need to make as much money as we can on each little part, right? And so our poor revenue model is based upon uh, fees structures within transaction flows. Hi, my name is Shane Trevino, Operations Manager at College Truckers. Thanks for listening to the Venturing Out podcast. How are you going to implement the insight Bryce has offered into your business? Let us know by reaching out to our Instagram at Baylor Venturing Out or connect with us on LinkedIn. So you're taking essentially uh, a trade-off between volume of touch points and price of a touch point. Because as you had identified, there are seven, eight different intermediaries in that coffee shop example. And if you're replacing six or seven of them, you have a higher volume of touch points. Because you have a higher volume, you're actually able financially to charge or incur that a uh, lesser degree of cost for the business because you're actually in contact with them more often, which saves the business money. Yeah, and ultimately produce a higher margin than some of our competitors who are only focusing on one or two areas. So Bryce, honestly, I'm listening to you talk about all of this and it sounds like a lot to take on going from an idea and then building out all this, um, you know, small details of integration and how you're going to make this happen. So tell me who's your team and who built your, your applications? Yeah. So I, uh, self-taught myself how to code actually, uh, wow. as I said in the beginning, uh, you know, my degree is really nothing to do with computer programming. Right? <laughs> um, and I find that diving in and doing it um, is the best learning experience. You know, there's, you, as you know, you can try as hard as you can to put every detail in a textbook, but every day you're learning, whether it is computer programming and new things are coming out or it's just running a business. You know, you can get as much mentorship 
of people sharing their experiences and trying to assist you along the way, but there are new obstacles that always come up. And so being able to be adaptable and self-learning is I think a huge, huge resource and ability you need um, to have as an entrepreneur. And with that, you also need a really strong team. You need people around you to help, whether it's individuals or partnerships. And so Brian, who's our CTO, he built our entire architecture. He's built our architecture for Fortune 500 companies, government organizations, and other startups as well in the past. He's got going on, what, 20 years now of uh, DevOps, which is development operations experience. So he's built our technology platform across multiple clouds, right? Like AWS, Google, and legacy data systems, uh, such as switch data centers, where we're using what's called bare metal, which is just basically your regular server. And he also has implemented secure monitoring and anomalies using machine learn learning uh, algorithms to detect irregularities in transactions, uh, as well as a, a deep understanding of if our environment is operating at full capacity. And security, lots and lots of security to detect and help us try to prevent cyber attacks. And so the biggest thing in cybersecurity is not making it impossible because there's, it's not, you know, if we will get hacked, it's when, and understanding, you know, where the vulnerabilities are and detecting an intruder and remediating it as fast as possible and securing your core data so that even if someone does get into your environment, they don't get access to sensitive information. And with that, we've also partnered with Visa as part of the Visa FinTech Fast Track program to get you know, one of the largest players in payments uh, to support us, as well as uh, big banks, right? So Wells Fargo is one of our sponsoring banks on the issue or on the acquiring side of the business uh, to provide FDIC insurance and other banking protections for the funds flowing through the network. And so all of this together is really what helped make this a reality. And we also, you know, worked with Jackrabbit Mobile, which is a really great development firm here in Austin to build our mobile applications. And so they helped us expedite the process. So sometimes, you know, you may be able to do something yourselves, but in order to expedite the process and do a cost analysis of time uh, versus resources, sometimes it is better to outsource and lean on third parties to help you expedite the development process. In this case, it's you know software development, but you could be manufacturing a consumer good. You know, once you start to scale, to really scale, you need to lean on robust manufacturing processes, and that's you know, how some startups can burn out is they do a great job at understanding their customer, a great job of understanding their product market fit. They've got a great marketing and sales plan, but they don't have an operational or supply chain plan from the beginning. They're not doing, you know, work breakdown analyses where they can really understand from a high level each step of a high level process and do a cost analysis of what it takes and what the critical path is. So if I'm going from A, B, C, D, E, 
and I need to do A and B and C before I can get to D, or I can just go A, B, D and still get to the critical path. What does it cost to do that? If I need to cut something out, you know, what is, what is, what are we losing as an organization so that we don't burn out of resources before we get to the end? And I think it's very, very critical for, you know, young entrepreneurs and just any business to be able to have that type of project management philosophy in place from the beginning. Absolutely. And I think it's really impressive to hear how you got some of these huge names in the industry to partner alongside you and um, really launch this idea that you had at such a young age. Another important part of um, people joining your team, right, is your customers. Your customers need to be on your team. So tell me, how did you begin marketing and raising awareness for this problem um, of intermediary costs that you're concerned with solving? Yeah, so we started with a very first customer. The most critical part of any business is your first customer. And I would say once you get a first customer who's willing to work with you, learn everything you can um, about that customer. Customer feedback is the most valuable part of product development, design, and really targeting into what the real market needs are. You know, it, it's really almost a scientific process. You have your hypotheses, right? What you believe based on primary and secondary research, understanding, you know, what you think your market needs and wants. And then when you start diving in with that first customer, you understand, all right, I, this, you know, this was true or this was false. Maybe we need to pivot a little bit. You know, we thought this would be a great feature and they like it, but it's, it's not, you know, critical towards their success as being one of our customers. And so we worked with CH Hawaiian Grill in Killeen, Texas, as our first restaurant to design around processes in not just the restaurant industry, but for small and medium business owners and how we could scale their success and work with them. And when we changed things, you know, there were stuff that we thought was great and our product was super cool, but really didn't hit home with the customer, didn't make the, the real impact that they needed. So we had to do some product tweaks and refinements and iterate through until we had a product um, that we thought was ready for market. And then we go to the next most important customer, which is the second customer and so forth. Every customer is the most important customer because you're continuing to expand your knowledge base of what works, what doesn't work, and continuously validating your market. And in technology and finance, things are changing every day, especially now, it's extremely rapid growing market. And so having an in-tune touch to your customers helps you be prepared for future developments. And we call them you know, lead users, the users that are using the product the most. They are often the ones that can foresee things that your you know, mass market will want in the future because their needs are typically ahead of your mass market. So, you know, if you look at the law of diffusion of innovation, it's a standard, you know, typical bell curve and you have your early adopters and your innovators in the beginning. Then you have your early majority, your late majority and your laggards, right? You're, in order to understand what your your early and late majority want, the bulk, the, the 60% of your target market, what those people want, if you are in tune with your early adopters and innovators, 
continuously listening to them, finding new needs, you can find ways to pre-predict what your mass market will want and develop and design towards those. Yeah. And I think what our listeners will hear later is we actually have a very similar conversation with the CEO and COO of Inventire on the importance of first integrations and beta testers and how you create a build, measure, learn feedback loop, which was uh, originated by Eric Rees and Lean Startup and how important that is to the trajectory of your business. Now, understanding that, of course, change requires requires capital. I understand that Odyssey Project has recently sought external funding. For those who may be listening, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who may be looking to get into contact with VC firms or private investors and begin pitching their business? What can they do to position themselves for that? Yeah, so especially talking about VCs and private equity, they get inundated with pitches and people asking to have them invest in their big idea, right? And from a VC's perspective, specifically venture capital, they need high returns because the way a VC works is you have managing partners who are the ones investing the funds on behalf of limited partners. It could be a wealthy family, wealthy individual, uh, or group of individuals who are the limited partners, who are the ones whose money is being invested. Those managing partners make money off their returns, right? And so it's, it's almost like, you know, a horse in a race. You want to bet on enough horses that are going to win the race. And so, yes, fundamentals are important. Finances are important. Underlying technology is important. But the most important thing when pitching a VC is, is the team, right? They want to know that they're investing in a team that has a great idea, but has the ability to pivot and modify strategies as the organization matures to get their return. And so that's just a critical part of any business is the team and to make sure that it is a functioning, uh, well-oiled organization. Right, and going back to what we were talking about earlier with level five leadership, can you put in place processes so that as if you were to leave the organization in the future, is there a robust team there and structures in place to continue the success up until the point that you led the organization? And that's really what a lot of VCs are are looking for. It's the members of the team, who's leading the team? Why is your group of individuals going to be successful at this versus someone who has another similar idea who's in their garage somewhere also working on the same concept. And so that's a very, very critical part in in successfully raising funds. Yeah, so Bryce, you've talked about, you know, a lot of things and a lot of problems that you're trying to solve. And these are real problems that businesses are facing. So tell us, what is the impact you're making? Why is frictionless payment so important to businesses or private individuals? What are the big differentiators and how is this applied to a real world scenario? Yeah, so I think the biggest impact is touching back on the idea of access, right? There are people from all different backgrounds, all different ideas, all different businesses, and all they want is to be included, right? They just wanna be a part of the conversation. 
They want to be able to get up in the morning, work hard, come home at night, you know, and be able to run their business. And in today's world, digital transactions, credit cards, debit cards is a critical lifeline to accessing payments from individuals and other businesses. And we've worked with several companies such as a a fireworks company here in Texas. Fireworks is a high risk business. It can be hard for them to be able to accept payments, right? Even if they have all the appropriate licensing, all of this, uh, they could be denied the ability to accept credit card payments just because that they're high risk. And so we've worked really hard with our, our sponsoring financial institutions and others in the industry to make sure more businesses have access. And so that fireworks company processes with us during the different fireworks seasons throughout the year. And they're able to accept funds quickly and efficiently uh, without being charged more just because they're high risk. And so it's, it's that kind of impact in, in allowing a business just to survive and be able to be included this is the impact we're trying to make. And as we continue to expand the business and get into individuals, there's a huge part of the market, right? So there's a lot of fintechs out there called challenger banks. And initially these challenger banks are digital banks uh, focused on people who the big banks thought weren't worth their time, right? Uh, People that didn't have enough capital, didn't have a high enough credit score, uh, came from low income areas, you know, big banks saw them as risks. Fintech saw them as market opportunity. Individuals who are underserved in a market that want access and they want inclusion. They want to, to be involved, right? And so as you now see in the market, these challenger banks are now going after core banking customers as well. The idea that anyone anywhere should have the right and the ability to bank is, is really challenging the financial, you know, legacy, huge uh, monolith industry uh, that exists. You know, a lot of the traditional banking is changing and, it, and it's all pivotal around the idea of access and letting people be included. And, and like I said earlier, the exchange of value happens between two individuals and in a community. And when you're not allowed to be involved in that community, you know, it, it hurts as an individual and it feels unfair and it is, right? We want more people to be involved in the global community. Wow. Honestly, you've unpacked so much today. And personally, I didn't realize how complex FinTech was, but it's insanely complex. And I appreciate you giving us a closer look and a more detailed perspective of the impact it makes, the market that's out there for it, and really the problems that you're able to solve. And I can tell you're passionate about it and you're making a really big impact in today's business and the world of business. So I appreciate you spending the time with us today and helping our young entrepreneurs listening um, to understand FinTech a little bit better and get a little more perspective into what it is you do and how the Odyssey Project is making a big impact in today's world. Yeah, thank you. I I really uh, appreciate and hope that what I've shared can make an impact. Thanks again for listening to the Venturing Out podcast. We really can't do this without you. 
Join us again in two weeks when we'll dive deeper into the Odyssey project and hear about Bryce's experience growing his company. Like always, follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn by searching Baylor Venturing Out. That really is the best way to stay up to date on all things Venturing Out. If we've earned it, leave a review because reviews help us understand how we can become better. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.